I'm Roma Agrawal. I'm a structural engineer, author, and host of this podcast, Building Stories, a brand new series that looks at the hidden stories behind our structures. In each episode, I'll be delving into the fascinating secrets behind some of the world's best-known buildings, bridges, and other structures, as well as some incredible feats of engineering that you may never have heard of. I'll also explore what's going on from different perspectives, looking closely at the materials, history and people that led to the existence of these structures with the help of some special guests. People often ask me what my favourite structure is. Now, um, I'm a little biased, but I usually reply, the shard. The reason is because I was one of the structural engineers involved in its design. In fact, I spent about six years of my career designing its foundation and its spire. Designing skyscrapers, especially in the middle of bustling cities like London, requires some special engineering. And I'm really excited to be able to share some insight into the innovations that allowed this beautiful piece of engineering to be made a reality. So I am standing in a little alleyway and I've got a stone building on one side of me. I've got a brick building on the other side of me. But when I look forward and up, to be honest, um, really high up, I can see this massive pointy glass clad skyscraper, which um, of course is the shard at London Bridge. And it's, you know, it's a really beautiful day today. It's spring in London. There's a blue sky. Um, I'm looking up and I can see the beautiful facets of the windows, all these different angles that join together to make the shape what it is. So the Shard is 310 meters tall, which makes it the tallest building in Western Europe. And it's got um, 72 floors which are accessible to the public. So if you go up into the viewing gallery, that's where you'd be standing, level 72. And then it actually goes up to level 87. So the fact that um, the Shard was actually built in the middle of central London has really affected what it looks like and how it was built and how it was engineered. You've got the glass facade and it's angled at about five or six degrees and then all these different points join together to create this really tall triangular building. So the history of the site actually is that it got bombed during the Second World War and a part of the old Victorian brick viaducts, the arches that were there before, got destroyed and it basically left this really jagged shape of a site right in the middle of the city there and then what the architects did was to basically draw lines around this slightly odd shape and then if you imagine drew some big triangles and then angled all those triangles at about five or six degrees and then you ended up with the shard and that's why you've got all these different facets of of you know facade that are at seemingly random angles but actually there's a really historical reason as to why the shape of the building ended up the way it did. So as a structural engineer, in really basic terms, my job is to make things stand up. So we have different forces acting on buildings like the Shard, and we basically do the maths and the physics to make sure that the architect's kind of vision of what the shape of the building is or the bridges can be achieved safely and resist all those forces. This may sound odd, but nature is constantly throwing different forces at all the structures that exist on Earth. 
The job of the engineer is to make sure that the buildings and bridges we design can withstand these forces. So when we're designing buildings, we look at forces for two things. Vertical forces, which is everything that's pulling the building down, and then the horizontal forces, which is pushing the building on the side. I called on structural engineer Najwa Jawahar to explain the main forces and also tell us what can happen if we underestimate them. The main force that pulls the structures down is gravity. So it's the force that attracts anybody. It can be humans, it can be things, furniture, machinery, towards the centre of the Earth. So if we were underestimating the gravity, then that would mean that any building, when, when the loads are actually applied to it, will literally collapse. As a structural engineer, when we're designing buildings, we look at what those loads are, where are those loads concentrated, and then design the structural elements and basically the skeleton of the building based on that to take those loads down to the ground. The skeleton is made up of floors, which we call slabs, then the beams which help the loads from the floors to be transferred to the columns, which are the vertical elements, and that load then go all the way down to the foundations which sits inside the ground and then transfer the loads into the, the soil below it. The material we select to build the skeleton out of depends on what these loads are and what the main use of the building is going to be. But before we get to that, we're not quite done with forces. So whilst gravity is the main vertical force, there are also some horizontal forces that come into play. Wind is the horizontal force I was previously talking about. So it's basically, you have something standing vertically, a building, and you're literally pushing it on the side. It's very important for the tall buildings because the taller you go, the more force you're applying. And there's a concept called bending. So it's literally pushing the building, so it's bending over the foundations. If we don't design for it, the building will topple over. Wind is quite unpredictable because uh, it's not something you can say today the wind will be a number. Wind will be changing depending on my, where my site is, what other buildings are around it. So in an open field, wind pressures will be high. In a closed field, is resisted by everything around it. So by the time it gets to the building, it's very low. It also depends on the altitude of the site compared to the sea level. So you can see how it can change depending on a building in Manchester versus a building in London versus a building in Glasgow. So the Shard being in the middle of central London, what this means is that the wind which is coming to it is actually quite buffeted by all the different structures that surround it. But as you move up the tower, the wind force gets stronger and stronger. And this was something that we definitely had to consider. One thing that affects the wind or the design is the shape of the building. If it's a box, it has sharp corners, the wind will have very concentrated forces in a local area. If it's a round building, the wind can go around it, which means it's something which we need to take into account from early stage of the design, especially for the tall buildings, because then we need to make sure that the building is stable. So having a core on the inside of the building is one way of making a tower stable, but another way is to actually create a skeleton on the outside of a building. We're going to hear from the daughter of the inventor of that system a little later on. So we have vertical and horizontal forces acting on the outside of a building. But what does this actually mean for the skeleton and the core inside a building? Imagine I'm standing and someone pushes against my shoulder. 
That's the external force. That's the wind. And my spine and my muscles engage to resist that pushing force and keep me standing up. What's the equivalent of this muscle response in a tower? We call that compression or tension. So back to me being pushed by someone. If I'm being pushed on my right shoulder, my body will curve to the left. As I curve towards the left, my right side gets longer and is in tension, whereas my left side is being compressed. This is literally what is happening in the core of a building. You can't see it, but it's happening. Let's think of a ruler, right? Imagine a ruler, you're holding it from two sides and then you bend it. Najwa will tell us a bit more about what tension and compression mean and how different parts of the building's skeleton experience it. The top of the ruler is being pushed inside. So when you're pushing something, that's the concept of compression. You're applying a force to compress something. However, if you think about the same uh, ruler and then pull it, that's called tension. So when we're designing the buildings, we have some elements in compression, some in tension. So in summary, compression is when something is being squashed and tension is when something is being pulled. Now all parts of the skeleton and core of a structure experience either tension or compression or both because of those outside forces. This means engineers will select different materials depending on the magnitude of that tension and compression. So let's start with concrete. Concrete is very good in compression. If I was pushing forces on it from top and bottom, that's in compression. And I will need to apply a lot of load to be able to break that. Whereas if I pulled it on both sides, I need a lot less force to be able to break that apart. And the reason for that is concrete is not good in tension. Whereas if you look at steel, steel is inherently good in both tension and compression. So I will need, compared to concrete, I will need a lot more force in both compression and tension to be able to, uh, to break that element. Usually, the skeleton of towers are made predominantly either from steel or concrete. But in the case of the shard, we've used both. The reason for this is that the shard has a mixture of offices, hotels and apartments and different materials work better for those different uses. For offices, the biggest criteria is to have a large open space where people can collaborate. For that, you need big open floors. And uh, that's why steel is a better option because steel is good in tension. Remember those beams which bend? Steel can do that over a very long span. And then we have restaurants and uh, hotels made out in concrete because we want that acoustic properties, we want that um, nice, quiet residential spaces, and we have that benefit of being able to use smaller spans. You have the capability to have those partitions between the rooms. Using concrete in hotels has the advantage of absorbing sound, so you won't hear your noisy neighbours as much. Even the concrete in our structures is made stronger by incorporating steel. We use steel meshes to bind the concrete together, which is where reinforced concrete gets its name from. So it's becoming more obvious by now that steel is pretty important in the construction of the shard and most of the modern world being built with it. So I spoke to Anna Pushaisky, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute of Making at University College London. Basically what that means is that I'm a material scientist and I look at stuff. So I asked her to tell me about the stuff inside the shard, specifically its main material, steel. 
So steel in itself, I always like to think of it as kind of like baking a cake. So you have your main ingredient, which is iron, and then you add all sorts of other ingredients to flavour that iron for different purposes. So the main two ingredients with steel are iron and carbon. But the other flavourings that you can give it are with elements like chromium, if you want to make stainless steel. So the art with steel and steel making is to do with adding the right elements in the right proportions to make your steel as you want it. So getting the right kind of steel depends on getting the exact right amount of carbon atoms into the atomic structure of the iron. But how exactly do you get the carbon atoms into the iron in the first place? When you heat it up, it can dissolve more carbon atoms. Now this is the same as you would experience if you're trying to dissolve sugar into a cup of tea or anything warm can dissolve more stuff, basically. Um, So when you heat up iron above 910 degrees Celsius, suddenly it changes its crystal structure. And in that configuration, you can get many more carbon atoms in there. Well, not that many, actually, only about 2%, but more more than before. You might have seen sort of like iron workers quenching materials by plunging them, plunging their swords into water and stuff and cooling it very, very quickly. Now, when you cool it quickly, those carbon atoms end up trapped where they are in the crystal structure. And that causes a lot of tension and strain in between the atoms in that structure. Now, again, that sounds quite bad, but what it does is it makes a material that you have at room temperature that is extremely hard. Got it. So much better for making stronger swords. But why did it take us so long to start building steel skyscrapers? One of the reasons that we didn't have steel as a building material for so long throughout our history is the fact that iron itself has quite a high melting temperature. So in contrast to metals like tin and copper and bronze, which we used much earlier in our history, we didn't have the right kind of furnace technologies that meant that we could sort of melt the iron properly and really start getting to grips with steel making. However... That's the case in the West. Actually, in the Indian subcontinent and Sri Lanka, they had much better technologies and they were actually able to make a material which was called Woots steel. <laughs> I think I'm saying that right. It's spelled W-O-O-T-Z. I'm going to say it again in case you might. <laughs> they made a material called Woots steel and this is a steel that they were able to make because in countries like Sri Lanka, they developed furnaces that were powered by the high strength of the winds that were coming through, um, which is very specific to that region. So because of those high winds, they were able to make furnaces that could go much hotter. And therefore, they were able to do steel making way before anyone in Europe. Even in the Roman times, the Indian subcontinent were making steels and they would export it to the Arab world and the Chinese, um, but they kept their secret closely guarded. Now, in the Middle East, they developed, using this wood steel, they developed something called Damascus steel, which you might have heard of. It was kind of like this legendary steel that could make blades that were super strong and super tough and wouldn't break. And really interestingly, in 2006, scientists found that this legendary Damascus steel was so legendary because it included carbon nanotubes and nanowires in its atomic structure, which is phenomenally advanced science. Um, Now, we don't know whether they actually understood the science of what they were doing when they were making these Damascus steel swords, but it's really fascinating that the nanotechnology that we think of as being so modern was actually being used hundreds and hundreds of years ago. In fact, this incredibly hard steel was being imported to Damascus in Syria from India and Sri Lanka where it was made as early as the 3rd century and being made into swords, blades and whatever else they needed. 
Unfortunately for the West, though, the process of making high-quality steel was a mystery until an Englishman called Henry Bessemer invented his own way of mass-producing it cheaply. And it all started with some exploding guns. So steelmaking really didn't take off again until about the 17th century. So for years and years we were using pig iron and wrought iron to make kind of basic structures, but we couldn't really build useful things with it yet. And that all changed with someone called Henry Bessemer. So Henry Bessemer was your sort of stereotypical Victorian inventor. Um, When he was 17, he moved to London with his father, who owned a metal factory, and decided that he was going to become an inventor. One of the things that he invented was a new type of bullet that could carry much more gunpowder than the old types of bullets. So he approached the British Army and said, I've invented this new thing, might be of interest to you guys. Um, And they weren't that interested, funnily enough. So he took it to the French army and said, are you guys interested in this? And they said, oui, oui. That's not necessarily a direct quote from the French army in the 17th century, but you get the idea. They wanted to put this new type of bullet into their guns, but one of the problems was that the gun metal that they used was too brittle. So if you were to use more gunpowder, you would end up breaking the machine and it would explode in your face. Um, Not ideal. So Henry was tasked with finding a new type of steel that wasn't going to be as brittle and so they could use his bullets. So he went to his furnace, which he had in his garden, I think in Hampstead. Well, actually, it was Highgate. But you're close enough, Anna. Quick warning before we continue. It is very much recommended that, unlike Henry, you do not try this at home. What he found was that in that furnace, the material wasn't melting properly. It couldn't get hot enough. So in an attempt to melt the iron in his furnace, what he did was he turned off the hob and closed the furnace at the top and blew in hot air into that furnace. But suddenly, having closed the top of the furnace, huge explosions started happening inside the furnace. So he ran for cover. There was explosions after explosions. There was hot metal flying around everywhere. But he waited for it all to calm down. And when he opened up the furnace, what he found was that the material at the top of the furnace was extremely pure iron. So what he'd managed to do was remove all the impurities from the material and end up with pure iron. Iron itself is quite soft and not suitable for making something like the shard. So actually what you have to do when you make steel is to take iron that has a lot of impurities, including carbon, remove all of those impurities so that you end up with pure iron and then in a very controlled way add in the other elements that you want back into the iron so that you know exactly how much carbon you have in there because just 1% either way can change the whole material into being something that's extremely brittle or is extremely soft or something that you don't want. So the Bessemer process really opened up an industrial way of creating very high purity iron which hadn't been done before. So suddenly now you can make steel at huge scales for a sixth of the price as before. The Bessemer process had huge implications on the railway industry as suddenly we were able to mass produce cheap steel to make vast amounts of trains and train tracks. And we started building taller and taller, leading to the construction of the world's first ever skyscrapers. This invention was very significant in kick-starting the Industrial Revolution. But there's a twist in the tale. 
So Bessemer was really excited about the fact that he'd just been able to produce very high purity iron in his back garden. He patented this process in 1855 and licensed that out to all sorts of different people that were very, very interested. The problem with it was the people that were trying to recreate his process were unable to recreate what he had found. And they were very angry about this. They asked for all their money back. And Bessemer was left quite poor and quite confused because he didn't know why his had worked and nobody else's had. So what happened was that his raw material was very low in phosphorus and he was using a brick-lined kiln. Now, the others had tried also using brick-lined kilns, but their raw material was much higher in phosphorus and this combination didn't work. So this is why Bessemer should have really paid more attention in chemistry class. He didn't actually quite understand this chemistry of what was going on for quite some time after the original invention. But having ironed all those processes out... Pun intended. He then re-rolled out the Bessemer process, which is what changed steelmaking forever. And there are other advantages to steel. One of the other reasons that steel is a brilliant material to use is the fact that it is good at resisting rust. Now, rusting is a huge, huge problem, right? In the UK alone, we spend about 3% of our entire GDP just dealing with the problems of corrosion, and that's corroding bridges, it's corroding infrastructure, it's corroding buildings. Um, Now, that's about a third of what we spend on the whole of the NHS. So there you have it. Super strong swords, exploding guns and atomic matrices. I can definitely see the appeal of being a material scientist. As skyscrapers got taller and taller, we started to see real innovation in design that allowed us to continue that upward trend. A real hero of mine is structural engineer Fazlur Khan, who was born in Bangladesh and emigrated to America, where he earned himself the title of Father of Tubular Design for Skyscrapers. Fazlur Khan took the internal skeleton or core of a skyscraper and put it on its outside. So those big diamond shapes or crosses that you can see on the outside of these towers actually make up that external skeleton or tube. He flipped the traditional skyscraper inside out. Some of the most famous examples of tubular skyscrapers are the Gherkin, as it's known in London, the Hearst Tower in New York, and the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur. Of course, the John Hancock Center in Chicago was one of Fazlur Khan's most famous constructions. I had the real pleasure of speaking to Yasmin Sabina Khan and was particularly excited to speak to her because she told me firsthand about her amazing father, who was a real role model to me and a pioneering structural engineer. Yasmin grew up in Chicago and although she hadn't intended on following in her father's footsteps, she studied at the University of Michigan and then did a master's in Berkeley, which led her to design buildings in San Francisco and Boston. Can you hear me? Oh, Oh, yes, we can. Fantastic. Ah. (laughs) I asked her how she came to write her book, Engineering Architecture, The Vision of Fazlur R. Khan. In 1995, after my mother passed away, I was sorting through her things and realized how much material I had about my father's work. I really hadn't known that he'd written 100 papers. Started reading his papers and then decided that, yes, that was something I could do and would like to do. 
Well, I'm, I'm really, really glad that you did that because I think it's it's such an amazing contribution to our profession. So, I, yeah, I'm really, I'm really pleased that you were able to do that. I'd like to start a bit maybe about Fazlur Khan's childhood. So I was reading a little bit about how bright he was, that he wasn't maybe challenged at school as much as some of the other students. And then, you know, the role that your grandfather played in educating him further and also his choice of becoming an engineer? Well, um, my grandfather was the eldest in the large family and he had taken on the role of looking after each person. And when my father was a boy, he must have seen something in him because my father, he could tell, was not the type to simply learn what he was told to learn. He wanted (laughs) to understand and he questioned and they bonded in a way that friends and family still tell me was quite unusual for mm. an older man to be friends with his young son. And so my father then, when he was finished with high school, he had to decide on what field he wanted to study in. Yeah, and I found this story really fascinating because I think, um, and you, obviously you can tell me more, but... There was a choice between physics and engineering, perhaps, and that there was something about early morning lectures on the engineering front. So so I love that because I did a degree in physics and then I switched to engineering later. And I can I can certainly attest that I had a lot of early morning lectures in my in my during my physics degree. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, um, I think my my grandfather asked my father, what are you interested in? And and so my father had he named two careers that he thought of. One was structural engineering and the other was physics. And he said he really liked the mystical and abstract aspects of physics. And that's not something you usually hear an engineer say. That's amazing. I love that. Absolutely love that. And then my grandfather said, he said engineering was good because it would make you get up for early morning classes. (laughs) Oh my God, he sounds so much like my own grandfather. So... And this, there's so many parallels. I wonder if this is an Asian family thing, but yeah, really, really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my understanding is in the space of three years, he, he completed a lot of qualifications. Is that, is that correct? In his first three years that he was in the U.S.? So he came to the U.S. in the 50s, in uh, 1952. And yes, it was quite astounding, really. Um, and I have no idea how he did it. But he... And received two master's degrees and then his PhD. I guess what I found very interesting about him is his whole philosophy of engineering and, you know, the interaction with architecture. He was, I guess, qualified as a structural engineer, but how did he see his relationship and w- with architects and how involved did he get in that side of design? Well, I think that he had an ability, first of all, to communicate well with other people. And that was essential. Yeah, and I think one thing it's worth pointing out for listeners that aren't so familiar, there aren't that many practices around the world where architects and engineers actually work for the same practice. And so it it strikes me that he was in the right place for him, you know, the creativity, the way he solved problems. It, it sounds like that was really a good environment for him to thrive in. Yes, yes, definitely. I think that that, that made it much easier. And also at the time, uh, there was an openness to 
uh, bringing s structural engineering and architecture together. And it was also, it's, it is difficult to imagine the period because things have changed so much over the years. But in the early 60s, even the largest offices were just beginning to use computer. When you were looking at a structure, you couldn't use the computer to help you determine how is it going to behave under wind load or any, any other load. You had to determine yourself how the structure behaved. Of course, and I think that's a really, really important context to bring to the conversation because I think it makes um, his work all the more impressive. You would have had to have um, a much more kind of, uh, I guess, tangible understanding of how forces work and just kind of an intuition really about th this interaction between force and structure. Right, right, yes. And uh, that leads into the uh, the frame tube, the tube design, yes. uh, which um, was a new way of designing buildings, tall buildings that provided an efficient framework for the structure to resist wind. Yeah, so could you tell us a bit more about the design, the philosophy that led to this? I think it's an amazing title. It's the father of tubular design of skyscrapers. Well, what would normally happen, and my father, his first step along this path was determining the premium for height. That's what he called it, which was the, if you took a, let's say you built a 20-story building, and traditionally that was thought of as basically a layered floor level layered on top of the other. The framework was spread throughout the floor plan yeah. as they would be on a one or two or three story building. And that was just extended upward. There was no change in form really. Yeah, so, so what we're saying is that the engineers and architects at the time just saw a 20 story building as the same as a three or four or five story building and they just kind of put extra layers of the cake as it were on top. But he took us another step back and said, but what about the actual form of it? What he said was, if we have to adjust that and increase the size of those columns and beams for wind, because now the building has to resist wind in addition to the gravity load, that increase in column size uh, in order to resist wind, he called the premium. He said, our goal should be to try to minimize its premium for height. He, he took a step back and looked at the building in a more abstract way. He told some people that he actually could feel the forces in the building. He could imagine the building and what it was going through as wind blew on it. And that was when he decided that a stiff form that would naturally resist wind is a tube shape either a round tube shape or, uh, more practical for a building, a uh, rectangular or square. And that by pushing the columns that were normally spread throughout the floor plan, by concentrating them around the perimeter of the structure, one not only had the framework to support the building's gravity load, its own weight and the people within it, but it also had naturally a stiff form that added to its uh, wind resistance and so meant that the premium for height could be reduced 
I think very interesting that he credited Bruce Graham, the senior design architect, for helping him develop this. That was the wonderful Yasmin Sabina Khan. So my two observations about that story, one is the fact that he was trying to use the same piece of structure to do two different types of work, take vertical loads and take horizontal loads, because I don't think that's how engineers generally designed buildings at the time. And the second one is a structural engineer giving credit to an architect. Um, not something that happens very often. So that that's a really lovely story about how, you know, when we work together and we design together, we can actually create much more efficient and just better, better design, just good design. Well, that was a pretty packed episode. We started with the shard, learning about the different uses and materials that define it. We charted the forces that are constantly pulling and pushing at our structures and learned how we resist them. We heard the story of steel, a vital material in our tower toolbox. And finally, the amazing story of Fazlur Khan, whose designs allowed us to smash the limit of our towers in the 20th century. But how tall can we build? From an engineering point of view, very, very tall. There are towers over a kilometre high being planned in the Middle East as we speak. But we're now stopping to ask ourselves what we want to build rather than what we can. I believe that the average height of our towers will ultimately plateau. Sure, we'll continue to build those iconic, one-off, record-breaking towers, but ultimately, our humanity will hold us back from constructing these en masse. Gazing up at towers fills us with excitement, but we also want a connection to the earth to feel grounded. Thank you to all of my guests, structural engineer Najwa Jawahar. You can find her on Twitter at Najwa underscore Jawahar. Thanks to Anna Pushaisky, material scientist and podcaster. Listen to her podcast, Real Talk, that's apostrophe R-I-A-L talk, on your favourite podcast platforms. And thank you to Yasmin Sabina Khan, author of Engineering Architecture, the vision of Fazlur R. Khan, a wonderful look into the life of her father. This has been a Folded Wing production. Thank you to Dilesh Harya for my theme music. I've been your host, Roma Agrawal. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Roma the Engineer. And my website is romatheengineer.com. You can find more info, pictures and other exciting stuff from this podcast on our Instagram and Twitter pages. Just search at buildingstpod. Our website is www.buildingstoriespodcast.com. Join me next time to hear the extraordinary story of the Brooklyn Bridge. This episode of Building Stories was made possible with help from the Institution of Structural Engineers, or iStructE, and Roma the Engineer Limited. The iStructE website features great resources, including unique learning tools like their technical guidance notes. You can also find out about the benefits of student membership, which is an invaluable first step towards a professional career as a structural engineer. If you're enjoying the Building Stories podcast, 
you'll hopefully like My Book Built. Learn more about the hidden stories behind our structures, now available in paperback and available from all good bookstores.